So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. And uh, as always, if you don't have your, your Bibles, that's, that's fine. We're going to put uh, the scripture we read up on the screen so that you can read along. And uh, this has got to be one of my favorite uh, chapters in the scripture. It's uh, often referred to of, uh, as uh, the Hall of Faith instead of the Hall of Fame. And the reason uh, people call it the Hall of Faith is it is uh, kind of a bunch of models of our faith from the Old Testament, men and women uh, who just had unbelievable trust in God uh, at moments in their lives where they were uh, called upon God and had to summon faith to do to do exploits and to walk through sometimes difficult circumstances, to lead nations, to uh, to win in battles, and uh, to see resurrections and so many different things. So we're not going to read through all of it, but I want to pick up six verses and. Uh, That'll kind of lead us into what the title of our message is uh, today, which is Through the Cruel Edges. Verse 32. The writer says, I could go on and on, but I've run out of time. There's so many more, speaking of these men and women of faith. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. Through acts of faith, they toppled kingdoms. They made justice work. They took the promises for themselves. They were protected from lions, fires, and sore thrusts. Turned disadvantage into advantage. They won battles, routed alien armies. Women received their loved ones back from the dead. There were those who, under torture, refused to give up or give in and go free, preferring something better, resurrection. Others braved abuse and whips and, yes, chains and dungeons. We have stories of those who were stoned, sawed in two, murdered in cold blood, stories of vagrants wandering the earth in animal skins, homeless, friendless, powerless. The world didn't deserve them, making their way as best they could on the cruel edges of the world. You know, as you uh, read through this entire chapter, you'll see some amazing stories of some incredible victories, men and women of God who believed God in sometimes difficult, hopeless circumstances, and God came through with amazing promises, healing and resurrections and abundance and blessing and so many wonderful things. And I think as I... uh, gave my life to Christ at 16 years of age. And I began to walk through uh, the next couple of years of sensing a call into ministry and then actually responding to that call and beginning to launch out and uh, moved to Tulsa and got in this city that uh, talks a lot about faith and faith in God and what God's promises can do. And I began to embrace that and begin on some level, at least to begin to understand faith and the fact that God does care that we do have covenant with God, that he loves his children, that he wants to provide for them. He wants to meet their needs. He wants to give them victory. And and I began to really embrace that side of faith, the side of faith that uh, just seemed to bring good and blessing and abundance and opportunity and influence as I began to step into ministry. I just began to see God's blessing on so many different levels. It just seemed like one time after another, God would just show up with with just nothing but good. 
I remember in my 20s, uh, we, uh, we began to launch out in Christian television, and we created this, this uh, kind of teenage Christian TV show that was like a, a Christian Saturday Night Live, and we had all these music artists from back in the day. I don't know how many remember Petra and <laughs> Carmen and... Rick Kua and Kenny Marks and, and uh, DeGarmo and Key and all of you, you know, and some of you don't have a clue what I'm saying, but, but, uh, but yeah, we bring in these artists and we do skits and sketches and, and share the gospel through television. And that show went around the world. It went to other nations. We sent out 5,000 videos every month to churches and youth groups and homes. And, and uh, this influence and this opportunity to, to share the gospel just became so wonderful. And I was invited to speak and conferences and churches and crusades and, and the steps of our capital. And, and I mean, just all these things. I thought, Wow. It's amazing what faith in God can do. All these wonderful things. Then I moved into my, my 30s and found myself really having a desire to dig deep into the local church and to help to create a student ministry uh, in, a, in a local church here in Tulsa called 180. And some of you maybe grew up in 180. Some of you have heard of it. Some of you remember back in the, the late 90s and uh, mid to late 90s and some of the 180 experiences, and I think I saw Sam. Sam was a big, big part of that, and his family, and and uh, God just blew that thing up. I mean, within a few years, it was the largest student ministry in America. We were having 2,500 to 3,000 kids every Wednesday night. Two services, 1,500 junior highs, 1,500 senior highs, just and and. Kids are getting saved and riding buses. I mean, Sam was, and his family, and Chris and Hannah and Dr. Presley, I mean, they, they, they would sometimes bring as many as 400 teenagers from the burial uh, school district uh, to, to 180 in one night, and they would all meet at their house and load them up and bring them, and these kids would get saved, and we'd take them on mission trips. And so and it's just all these great things, and as I moved into my early 40s, I was writing books, and it, I just, one, one year after another, it was just nothing but God's blessing and abundance. And that seemed to be the side of faith that uh, I loved and knew so well is what faith could do and where faith could take you. And, and that's a legitimate part of our faith. But I have to say, in the last five to six years, there's been another side of faith that I've had to learn and discover. I've had to summon a different level of faith and really a deeper and much more difficult level of faith in my life. And I think probably most of you probably had to do the same on some level or another. Because uh, life just seems to, in certain times in our life and even seasons in our life, it kind of takes us through these cruel edges of the world, these difficult moments. And I think some of those cruel edges for me started when I got a text um, July 22nd, 2007 at 11.46 in the evening. It was a Sunday night. And it came from my oldest son's best friend at the time. My oldest son... Uh, his name is Jeremy, and he, he uh, 
He's happy for me to tell this story. In fact, I had lunch with him yesterday. But uh, he grew up a, what I would call a model Christian kid. He was in church every Sunday and every Wednesday because we made him go to church every Sunday and every Wednesday. He uh, discovered he had this gift for video and film, and, and he started to create videos for our youth group when he was 14, really good videos. And, and then he started doing it for the church, and pretty soon he was, he was employed uh, to do that. Uh, and looking back, as much as I really invested in his life and the life of my boys to teach them how to be really good Christians and how to really follow God, I think uh, sometimes I look back and there's a, a feeling of I kind of taught them how to be preacher's kids as much as I did Christians. And there's a difference. And he became a really good preacher's kid. Uh, he uh, had a clear list of things he couldn't do, shouldn't do, couldn't listen to secular music except for you too. <laughs> because I was on the edge. I would allow him to listen to Bono because he was, he was, he was kind of Christian. <laughs> no, I believe he was, but... But no Harry Potter, uh, didn't smoke, didn't chew, didn't hang out with girls that do. And so there were all these things that he, he held to pretty well. I found out later in life there were a few things he, he did that I wasn't aware of. That really shocked me as a parent that somehow some things had slipped by my notice. But for the most part, had just lived this model Christian life. And then we moved to Dallas. We got to Dallas, and I started this church, and the church began to grow, and Jeremy was kind of helping do videos for our church, but uh, he was graduated by this point from his Christian school, and, and he uh, decided he was going to move downtown. We lived in North Dallas, so he was going to move downtown uh, with uh, his brothers and with some friends, and I got in this big house, uh, this rental house, and they moved downtown, and Jeremy began to kind of, for the first time, say, you know what? I've been in this Christian bubble, and uh, I kind of want to break out of it. You know, I want to see what this world's like and kind of what's going on beyond this, this really cocoon Christian world that I've lived in. And, and he began to do what some kids do, what I've seen a lot of preacher kids do and kind of explore in the world. It wasn't long for a couple of years he began to really spiral at some points in his life and uh, began to have some events and broken relationships and hurt and pain that he experienced. Sometimes, some of it just being in the cruel edges of the world and some of, it, some of it happening out of his former church world. And he got to a place where he was so despondent that when I got that text that evening on a Sunday night, the friend that sent me the text, said, Pastor Blaine, Jeremy's in trouble. And I thought, what? I had just been with him Sunday morning. He'd come to church. We took him to lunch. He was in my truck. I looked at him and said, Bob, how are you doing? He said he was doing fine. Everything was great. He went home. This text said Jeremy's in trouble. And, 
And I quickly called his friend. He said, I just talked to him. He hung up on me. He was depressed and suicidal, and he was talking about taking all these pills, and he was going to end his life. So I thanked him for calling, and I started calling my son on the phone, trying to get a hold of him. No answer, no answer. Dial, redial, no answer, no answer. Nothing happening. I didn't know where he lived because he just moved a week before to a new apartment, and I had not been there. I didn't know the address, and so... I'm like just freaking out, trying to figure out. I'm calling friends. Do you know where he lives? No one knows where he lives. It's midnight now. And finally, I get in the car and just begin to, to, to drive and dialing and dialing. And finally, uh, a lady answers on the end of the phone, and she says, hello. And I said, who is this? She says, well, we're the paramedics. We've just got to your son's apartment. And I was just living on the edge of the next words. I was imagining just hearing that you've lost your son. But she said, he called just before he passed out. He hit 911. We figured out his location. We drove here. We broke in his door and he is out. We're taking him, rushing him to the hospital. And so I rushed to that hospital and found my son in there barely alive. They, 200 Advil were in his system, alcohol in his system. They flushed charcoal through his body. And the next couple hours, as we were just literally praying and crying out to God, he kind of came to. Couldn't really talk. He was just almost comatose, but he kind of came to. And by about eight or nine in the morning, he could finally make some coherent language And of course, at that moment, you don't ask why. You just say, thank God you're alive. But we went through a couple years of helping him to rebuild his life and rebuild hope and find hope again in his life and find reason and purpose to live again. And today, he's a healthy kid and doing so well. And I am so, so grateful for that. But that began uh, began a series of really tough, cruel edges in my life. I went from working through my son with that to, as a pastor, having one of my sons meet and tell me that he had chosen to come out and be gay and live a gay lifestyle and working through that with my son coming clean in my own life, in my own sin, in my own addiction, not long after that, stepping out of ministry, going through a lot of brokenness and a lot of shame and a lot of pain and causing a lot of that for others, walking through the pain of a divorce, house foreclosures, deep depression. You know, I never understood depression. I remember through all the good years, I'd have somebody come up and Ask for prayer for depression, and I'd say, okay, well, you know, what's wrong? Well, just nothing really. What do you mean? Well, what, you know, something's caused this. I mean, what, you know, what, did you have a bad day? Did you lose your job? Did you, you know, you get fired? No, no, just in this depression. I'm just like, well, you know, get out of it. Like, smile. It's, you know, the world's good, you know, everything's fine. What, what's it? There's got to be a reason, and, and, and now I'm going through this where there's no reason. 
I mean, there's no circumstance I can point to where I just wake up and I'm like, I'm in this hole. Going through these cruel edges and I had to kind of figure out just a new level of faith and how do, how do I get through this and how do I get through loss and how do I get through pain? And I was drawn to this, this story that I've read and I've honestly preached on a lot through the years. But I'd never seen some things that I saw as I began to look at this story. And it was one of these great men of faith that is talked about in Hebrews 11. And uh, I'm not going to have time to read it all, and I'm certainly not going to get even close to sharing all of his story. I'm just going to share some parts. But, but I want you to see kind of how God brought this man through the cruel edges of this world. And his name is Gideon of Manasseh. His story is found in Judges chapter 6 and 7. We're just going to read a couple of verses that kind of set the stage for what happened here. I think you're going to like this. Verse number 11 of Judges 6 says, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite. I love that the angel just sat down. <laughs> you know, if I was an angel, I would, you know, have my wings spread and have some form of, but he just kind of said, hey, we're going to have a conversation. I love that about God. Let's talk. So he sits down and says where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, the translators, I think, messed this up. (laughs) Gideon wasn't trying to keep the wheat from the, the, the Midianites. The word it in the scripture in your Bibles is italicized. When you say italics on a word, that means the translators added the word to make it more clear, and usually it works. In this case, they did this passage a disservice, I believe, because he wasn't hiding it. He was hiding him. Literal wording of that is in order to hide from the Midianites. He was hiding, and we'll see why in a minute. And so it says that the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, and he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, I love this. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all the wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us in the hands of the Midianites. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of the hand or Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, he argues again. Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I am the least in my family. And the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you shall strike down all the Midianites together. This is an amazing story. It's unbelievable that God showed up in this young man's life. Gideon was living on the cruel edges of the world. And I'll tell you why. Israel had been totally overcome by this Midianite army. This is a real story. This really happened. Midianites had attacked Israel. Israel, the Bible says, had sinned in the sight of God. They'd begun to worship idols. They started to mess around. They started to do stupid things, and the enemy took advantage of them. And so these Midianites come in. They kill a bunch of Israelites. Gideon, I'm sure, had lost family members in this war. They pushed the remainder of Israel up into the dens and caves and the mountains, and Israel was literally hiding from their enemies in fear. Of all of Israel... 
one man, a young man, Gideon, came down from the mountain. And we find him in this story in a wine press. Now, a wine press was a place where they would tread on grapes. I think we have a picture of one. This is an actual uh, ex- excavated wine press in southern Israel that they have discovered. And, they, and as you can see, it's carved out and clayed out, you know, where they get into this press and they would put grapes down and they would tread on the grapes and they would stomp on these grapes and, and, and make juice, which would be fermented into wine. And, uh, and, and then they would obviously uh, gather the wine and, and serve it. But, but he's in this wine press and he's hiding from the Midianites. So he's, he's kind of covering up. And and, and yet he's doing something, he's threshing wheat. He's, I think that's how you thresh wheat, like something like, I, I'm not sure how, but, but he's threshing or winnowing and doing, making, making, getting the, separating the wheat from the, you know, from the husks and, 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 and most likely to make bread. And probably he's come down from mountains, he's hungry, he's wanting to make some bread and, and he's, so he's, but he's hiding. He doesn't want to get caught because you don't thresh wheat in a wine press. So, so he's hiding and the angel shows up. So here's this man, he's in fear, he's hiding, and the angel says, Gideon, you are a mighty man of valor. You are a mighty warrior. You are a man of courage. And Gideon argues, because he knew he wasn't. It's obvious he wasn't. He is hiding. He's afraid. And we see that fear come out by him saying, no, no, I am not that guy. Don't tell me about what God's going to do. I want to hear about the miracles and saving Israel. Can I tell you, we, we've heard all the stories about Egypt and the Red Sea and, you know, manna, all that. Listen, it hasn't happened for years. Haven't happened in my generation. It's not going to happen. You've come to the wrong guy. No, it's not going to happen. And it's so amazing that Gideon even, you know, had the gall to tell an angel that he was wrong. Like, if I ever have an angel show up at the end of my bed one day, and he's got like a 10-foot wingspan and, you know, halo power and looks, you know, like God's gold gym built strong, you know, angel like we see in the pictures. How many know you're not going to argue with an angel from heaven? But he did. He said he was such a cynic. He, he had so much doubt and unbelief. He, he just had heard all the stories and he was sick of it. He said, forget it. And the angel didn't quit. Like God just kept speaking and saying, no, you are going to do this. You're going to save your name. He said, wait, you would, do you know who I am? Do you understand my social status? If in case you don't understand my bio, let me fill you in. So he said, you know, angel, here's, here's the rest of the world, okay? They're on top. Here's Israel. We're beneath the rest of the world right now. We're living in caves. And then, and then here's my tribe. I'm in Manasseh. I know you probably haven't heard of Manasseh. I know you know about the Levites and you, you know about all these other, but no one really talks about Manasseh. And so I'm in, I'm in Manasseh. And then just so you know, in Manasseh, my family, my clan, the people I hang, they're the least in the tribe of Manasseh. And then just to, to make it real clear, I am the least or the youngest in my family. World, Israel, Manasseh, Gideon clan, Gideon. In other words, of all the nobodies in the world, 
I'm the biggest nobody. There's nobody more a nobody than me. I can do nobody big time. And you've come to the wrong guy. You just really have got the wrong address. But God did not have the wrong address. Because this man was in a wine press. This man had dared to at least come down from the mountain to do something. And God said, I've called you. Can I tell you something that God does not qualify you before he calls you? God does not need you to be perfect before he reaches in and brings you through the cruel edges. And you don't even need to be perfect as you walk through those cruel edges. It's more about him than it is about you. In fact, it's all about him. It's really not about us. We have a part to play. We have to do some things, but it's about him. You know, as he came to this wine press, I began to see some amazing symbolism foreshadowing even of this table. Because as we come to this table each Sunday, and there have been so many times I've come that I've just literally, as I've taken the bread and the wine and ingested it and crushed that bread in my teeth and thought about what Jesus has done for me, there's been so many moments where I've encountered the living Christ and I feel like I've heard his heart and his voice and had him speak to me or sometimes just wash me and clean me and fill me afresh with his spirit. I've just It's been so powerful to be a part of celebrating the table. But really, as you see the, the wine press and the wheat in that place of brokenness, it was like God was saying to Gideon, it's, it's out of my power. It's out of the, the power of the living God. It, this this uh, provision that I've made for you in this broken place, this wine press, uh, there's, there's goodness and there's hope that's going to emerge from this if you'll just accept it. And uh, something happened to Gideon. Something amazing happened because he got out of that press. And moments later, we see, as we read through Judges 6 and 7, he's calling men to war and to battle. He's destroying idols and taking down idols and calling Israel to repentance and, and saying, man, we're going to fight and we're going to win and we're, we're, we're going to go and, you know, Israel is going to be saved. That's what God said. He began to he began to voice and speak the word of the Lord that had come to him in, in that wine press. And apparently, this man's life was changed. Because after just a a, a few days, maybe weeks, there were 32,000 men that answered his call to go to war. This is a life that has been changed. I mean, think about it. This guy went from hiding and fearful and cynical and doubtful to a man that had so much faith and courage that 32,000 guys were not just signing up to be a part of his project, not just Facebook friends, not just on his Twitter account, but they were willing to go to war for him. They were ready to die for him. They were like, yes, let's go. Something changed on the inside of Gideon. You can change. 
You can get out of your brokenness. You can get out of the sin that has crippled you and the chains that have bound you. You can, I trust, you can get out of that depression and that discouragement, that anxiety, that fear that has gripped you, that drug addiction, that alcohol addiction, that pill addiction, whatever it is, there is freedom. There is transformation available in the cross and in the blood and in the body of Jesus Christ. You can be different and you must believe that. You've got to believe that. Gideon was a different man. I remember as I began to journey through recovery from my addiction, and I was, I was such a mess. I was in, I was in such a, a, a state of brokenness in my soul. And, and I just, I, I, I knew I had to give all I had to, to recovery. And I began to go to these men's meetings. And they were, they were Christian-based. There was one Celebrate Recovery on Friday night. And then I went to a, a Monday night uh, men's, men's recovery group. And then I went to a Saturday morning men's recovery. I went to three a week because, trust me, I needed all three. And if there was a fourth, I would have done that. And so I'm going to all these groups, and I'm just learning and growing and getting help because I want to find freedom. And it didn't happen in a month, and it didn't happen in two months. And three months later, I didn't really feel a whole lot different, but it just seemed like month after month after month after month, I slowly began to just take in the tools and the grace of God and the love of God and hope. And and I remember after about nine or ten months, I for the first time, I began to walk in my world and feel free and feel like this does not have a grip on me anymore. Not that there wasn't temptation, not that there there wasn't, you know, some weakness, but there there wasn't that hole where I felt like I just, I couldn't get free. There was this freedom for the first time, and it was amazing. And I remember as I continued to go to these groups, because I, I just wanted to keep my freedom, walk in my freedom, keep learning more. I remember one of the things that we do in these recovery groups, these 12-step groups, and some of you, you've been through 12-step. You've been there. You've been, maybe been a part or supported a friend or a loved one through a 12-step group, but, and, and they're great. But one of the things that they do in that group is, is at the beginning of the group, you would stand up. And you would say your name, and you would say, and I am a whatever addict. I am a addicted, I'm an alcohol addict, I'm a drug addict, I'm a you know, sex addict, I'm a whatever addict, and then you tell your story. And, and honestly, the first nine months, I was like, yeah, I, that's who I am, that's where I've been, I've gotta be honest, that's, that's the truth. But I remember as I began to sense that freedom come into my soul, I went to my group, and I remember for the first time standing up and saying, I'm not an addict anymore. I'm free. Jesus has freed me. And I told him, I said, I'm very aware of my weakness. I'm very aware of that temptation. I'm not living in denial, but that's not who I am anymore. I'm different. And personally, I didn't say this to them, but I just began to declare in my private life and world, I am a mighty warrior. I am a man of valor. I am a child of God. The resurrection power lives on the inside of me, quickening my mortal body in Christ. In my weakness, he is made strong. And I began to shift my identity from my past and who I was and all the junk in my life to who God was and who God was in my life and what the future could hold. And it radically changed me. And it's, again, it's not denying who we've been and where we are and what we need to be aware of, but it is 
It is really celebrating the table and celebrating the blood and celebrating what that blood and that body has done for us. You know, I had a friend in, in uh, actually a kid, but he became a friend uh, over the years. But he was a kid in my youth group. His name uh, was Hugh, and Hugh was, uh, said I could share his story. Uh, in fact, I saw him in the airport about four days ago, and we just by accident, you know, said hello and got to catch up. And so he was in my youth group when I was just starting out as a youth pastor. And we had a little, you know, youth group, about 20, 30 kids. And Hugh came every week. And Hugh was, uh, you know, he was a really nice kid, uh, but a little bit awkward. And he, he, he kind of came from a little bit of a turbulent home and some brokenness in his home and some challenges. And, and so he just kind of, you know, honestly, a lot of the, the other kids in the youth group didn't hang out with him uh, very much. And so as the youth pastor, I would, you know, and other youth leaders, we'd just spend time with him and love on him. But he was just, you know, just wasn't, the, the, you know, just kind of awkward. So uh, he came up to me one Wednesday night. He said, Pastor Blaine. He said, I just want you to know, I, I was praying last night, and I'd, be talk, I'd been talking about prayer and trusting God and hearing from God. He said, I was praying last night, and God spoke to me, and he said, uh, he said, uh, told me something. I said, well, Hugh, what did he, what did he say? And he said, well, the, the Lord told me that uh, one day I'm going to be president of the United States. And, and so I didn't know what to say <laughs> because uh, I looked at him, and I thought, this is the most unelectable kid I've ever met in my life. I mean, his own youth group wouldn't vote for him. I'm not sure I would, you know, and I, I thought, you know, and yet I didn't want to quash his dreams. I mean, I don't, I don't want to be the guy to throw water on it and say, no, are you crazy? You know, <laughs> you couldn't even be dog catcher. You know, I, I didn't want to do that, but I, so I didn't, I was, I was perplexed. Like as a pastor, I had to love him, but I had to also, I felt like, you know, be honest with him, you know, and, and uh, so I, I, I didn't know what to do. So I just, I just said, Hugh, let's pray. And so anytime a pastor and you have a conversation and you share a question or a story and they offer to pray <laughs> without any dialogue, that is a sign they know not what to do, all right? <laughs> so I just said, let's pray. And I, I didn't even know what I was going to pray. I was just like, at least we can close our eyes and, and uh, hold hands. So I just grabbed his hand and said, Lord, just bless Hugh and thank you for Hugh and bring him and yes and lead him and guide him and... God, make clarity come and help him to see <laughs> accurately. And, and Lord, uh, Lord, and if, you know, I know I had to broach the subject. So, Lord, if, if you've called him to be president of the United States of America, Lord, then, then yes, Lord, we believe that all things are possible, <laughs> even if they're highly unlikely. Thank you, Lord, that you could do that. And honestly, he just rose up from that prayer and just, yes, thank you, Oval Office play. You know, so, so he took off, and, and I, it wasn't long after that I moved. And, and so I'm, I, I'm, in a, I'm in this new location and living in a different city, and I kind of lost touch with you for like over 10 years. And I moved back to Tulsa after this, this length of time, and I, I'm walking in a mall, Woodland Hill Mall, I'm just minding my own business. And up walks this strapping young man. He said, hey, you're Blaine Bartell. And I said, hey, who are you? He said, I am Hugh. And I said, well, okay, yeah, so, so where do I know you? No, he said, Blaine, I am Hugh. And it dawned on me who he was. I mean, I just thought, wow, very cool. I shook his hand. He was like 
sharp and well-spoken and confident and, you know, good-looking young man. And I thought, well, this is just dramatic. And I was just shocked. And I, I saw, Hugh, so what happened? What are you doing? What, what? He said, oh, I'm going to Tulsa University. I said, okay. And so how's that going? And he said, well, I'm president of the student body. I said, oh, okay. And so, you know, good. He said, yeah, I'm, I'm also president of the College Republican Party. Uh, and uh, I'm, I sit on 20 boards in Tulsa and in my, my university. And I've got a, an offer to be an intern in Washington when I graduate with one of our senators, which he did. And I'm just... <laughs> like... I said, I knew you had it in you now. <laughs> I, I knew. I knew you could do it. <laughs> and so I'm like, hey, let's get cards and let's keep in touch. And, and, uh, and we do. And I just want you to know that wherever you are in life, one encounter with God can change your life. One word from heaven, one scripture that becomes revelation in your soul, one, one moment at the table can change our world if we begin to take steps of faith and trust in God moving forward. So just to close the story, I know you're probably wondering what, what happened with Gideon. I'll give you three little, three little things that happened. First of all, he gathered together his 32,000 and God spoke to him and said, all right, I need you to tell some to go home because you've got too many. Well, the Midianites had a half a million, but that didn't matter to God. 32,000 were too many. So he told him, he said, tell everyone's afraid to go home. They're afraid to go home. <laughs> well, Lord, we're fighting a half a million here. <laughs> yeah, but tell them if they're afraid to go home. So he did it. He just gathered his 32,000 men and said, hey, if any of you are afraid, I know there's probably not many, but if you are afraid to fight half a million people, uh, please feel free to exit the back door. And out of, uh, of 32,000, 22,000 left. Two-thirds of the army left, and the miracle was that the other 10,000 didn't leave too. Because if you see two-thirds of a group leave, you're probably wondering why am I not leaving. But there were 10,000 that stayed. And it's a, just a, a little reminder that we can't let fear dominate our life. Uh, fear and, and faith just don't mix. Now, you can push through fear with faith. You can have fear in your head, but kind of have faith in your heart and your actions and push through that fear. But we've got to stand up against fear. When fears and anxiety come, challenge them. Challenge them with the scripture. Challenge them with what Christ has done. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. And as you hear the word, as you know the word, as you remind yourself what God has said, that fear begins to be eliminated. But God eliminated the fear because he knew if they got to battle, they'd probably run and that wouldn't be good. So 22,000 left. Then God speaks one more time to Gideon. He said, you're just about ready, but I just need your group to go get a drink. 
need you to take them, march them down, get, get your warrior stuff on, get your helmets, get your, whatever you want to take, just get your stuff, and then we're going to march, and then, and then you're going to stop at this brook, and you're going to get a drink. And so with the whole army, 10,000, they're marching, they're ready to go to war, they're not afraid, they get to the brook, they've been walking, they've got this heavy, you know, outfit on, they're carrying weapons, and, and so they're probably tired, they're, they're exhausted, they're worn out, and, and, and he says, get a drink, but he says, he, the Lord says, watch how your army drinks. Because anyone who reaches down into the water and licks it up like a dog, putting their face in the water, they have to go home. They can't be in your group. They're not going to war. But if they reach down and cup the water with their hand, you may keep them. Those are your warriors. So I'm sure, you know, if it was me, I'm sure Gideon modeled good leadership. I mean... (laughs) He wouldn't not do the right thing. And I'm sure he said, all right, guys, before we go to battle, we have a beautiful brook here. We are all going to reach down and let's, <laughs> let's shall we get a drink? And uh, he had to do the, the right way. And, and so they all start drinking. And then he had them all stand up. He said, okay, any of you guys that like drank like dogs, if you were licking, you know, lapping it up with face of water, all the drug, dog drinkers, just come over to this side. And then uh, all the other guys that didn't drink like dogs, would you come over here? And so they separated, and there's 9,700 over here, and there's 300 over here. And I'm sure Gideon's like, God, did you mix that up? Like, were, the, were these the bad guys? Because God didn't really give them a reason why. He just told them to do this. And he said, no, this is a group. So he told the group, he did what God said. He said, you have to go home. Well, how come? Because you drank the wrong way. <laughs> well, how, how, what do you mean? Well, you drank like dogs. And well, how did you drink it in? Uh, we cupped our water, all 300. <laughs> we, were, we were cuppers. And uh, so they went home. I can only imagine some of the younger men as they walked into their house, their mom's cooking up dinner. And they're like, well, I thought you were fighting with Gideon. Yeah, I was. Well, you weren't afraid. Well, no, I wasn't afraid. Well, what happened? Well, I drank the wrong way. Well, how did you drink? I uh, drank like a dog, Mom. I've told you to cup your water, son. <laughs> so. And uh, I wondered what God was doing, like what that meant. And, and, uh, and then I was golfing. My dad's here. Dad, you might remember this, but my dad and my brother and I were golfing one time, and my brother was hitting a ball off the tee box in this direction down the fairway, and I'm over here at a brook, a little rushing mountain stream at this golf course. The angle is almost impossible for him to hit me, but he was such a bad golfer <laughs> that I knew he could. I thought he could slice it that bad. And so I found myself, as I'm getting a drink, I wasn't putting my face in the water aimlessly, stupidly, possibly to get injured. I found myself drinking like this. Like, I don't want to die. And I saw in that moment what God was looking for. He was looking for men who, while they were enjoying a moment of pleasure, sweet pleasure of life, quenching that thirst after a heavy walk, they still had their heads up, their eyes open and ready all the time. And as we walk through those cruel edges in life, it's easy to get your head down. It's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to just throw your face in the waters of the pleasure of this world and just say, oh, but we've got to keep our heads up, keep our eyes open to what God is doing. You say, well, what happened at the end? Did they win? No, they lost, but... <clears throat> so they get 300 
uh, Warriors left, 100 this side, 100 this side, triangulated around the Midianites. Midianites are in the valley. God gives them strategy. He says, I want you to sound trumpets loud as you can, 9 o'clock at night. I want you to shout the sword of the Lord in Gideon as loud as you can. Then I want you to put clay pitchers over your torches, break the clay pitchers at once, and then march with your torches towards the Midianites, and the battle will be won. He said, I will confuse the enemy. And so they did that. And it's 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night, it's dark. They blow their trumpets. Midianites obviously would hear these trumpets in the valley. Trumpets were a sign of war. The only army that would ever blow a trumpet when they were going to war was an army that believed they were going to win. It was a sign of, hey, (laughs) you are so bad, we're just going to tell you we're coming because there's no chance you're going to win. And so the Midianites were freaking out because they were thinking, this must be a huge army. No army lets lets us know they're coming unless they believe they're going to win. And then the next thing they hear are 300 warriors shouting at the top of their lungs, the sword of the Lord in Gideon. And they're, you know, the Midianites heard this. They're like, the sword of the Lord? <laughs> and Gideon, who's he? We've never heard of this Gideon. And they're like, it's a little bit mysterious. They're probably freaking out even more. And then the next thing is they're looking around. They've heard the trumpet, the, the, the shout. They see it, nothing in the dark until all of a sudden clay pitchers are broken from torches. Of course, they couldn't see the clay pitcher from a half a mile away. They couldn't see the men, but they did see 300 fires appear out of nowhere. Pop, 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 pop. Like, I don't have time for all 300, but, but <laughs> there were 300. And, and then the fires that mysteriously appeared out of the dark of night are now coming forward, marching down toward the Midianites. And the Midianites got so confused, so afraid, so terrified because they thought there were probably a million-man army behind the torches that they began to fight each other. We don't know exactly why or how, but they began to kill each other. And by the time Gideon's army got there, they were dead. The ones that weren't ran off into the dark of night. And so it doesn't matter what the odds are of where you are right now getting through your cruel edges. If you'll listen to God, if you'll turn an ear to him, if you'll lean into community, if you'll walk humbly, if you'll say, God, I need you and you alone. I need my church. I need my brothers. I need my family. I need the people around me. If you let people come into your life that love you and care for you, you're going to make it. God's going to give you grace. So you jump into that wine press and let the body and the blood bring healing. You're going to make it. God's going to give you grace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this wonderful, wonderful uh, community. Lord, this community in some levels just feels like a, a wine press that we can jump into and experience. Lord, uh, experience healing in our brokenness. Experience an encounter with you and know that you can speak to us and and give us grace to live and to move through, not stay in, but move through these edges into a life that you have for us. We thank you for it in Jesus' name.